in your Bibles, we've got a couple of uh, passages that I would like to read. The first is James 4. James 4, and then if you'd put your fingers in Romans 14, we'll also read that passage. James 4, verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> this is the inerrant Word of God. <clears throat> Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And if you would turn next to Romans chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know, and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing. You may be seated. <clears throat> Before we uh, continue in our, our outline on the conscience, I want to just do a little bit of review of what we covered last week. We saw last week that Adam and Eve had a conscience before they fell. And that means that the conscience is not a result of the fall. It's not a curse. It's actually a part of the image of God. Now, the conscience has been distorted by sin. It has been affected negatively by sin, and so we need to reorient it. We likened it to a dashboard on your car where the lights are going off when they're not supposed to be. You know, the oil light's flickering, and you look, and the oil's okay. And you don't get frustrated with it and smash it with a hammer. You fix it, right? Right? 
and uh, you try to get it realigned. And then we also saw that the conscience is composed of three parts. There is the legislative side, there is the judicial side, and there is the executive side. Uh, the, the first part has the sense of law that uh, God has uh, put within us, the second side of judgment, and then the third side senses the punishments or rewards. Now, here's the problem. We saw that all three parts of the conscience have been distorted by sin. And that's so important. There's a lot of people, when they're thinking about the conscience, they neglect this. They think of the conscience as the voice of God. It's not the voice of God. We saw how the conscience can make you feel very guilty over things that God says are good and can make you not feel guilty over things that are perfectly awful in God's sight. And so it's not the voice of God. And it's not always a, a very accurate understanding of the laws of God either. Now, I use the term legislative. We think of, uh, you know, American legislature as a body that makes up its own laws. And God says, that's many times what our consciences do. But they should not be doing that, nor should our legislature be making up new laws. They should be applying God's law. Because James says there is one law, there is one lawgiver, and there's only really one true good source of fear as well as of peace. And uh, so... If your conscience makes you feel like you have broken an ethical standard, you need to ask the question, whose ethical standard? Is it God's standard or is it man's standard? And if we don't ask that question, it's very easy for us to develop a social conscience. And we saw by that we mean a conscience that feels guilty when others approve or disapprove of what we are doing, but we don't feel at all guilty over God's disapproval. Okay, it's got a horizontal relationship. It's not got a vertical uh, relationship. And by the way, if you uh, missed last time and you want copies, um, uh, we've made several copies. I forgot to bring them with me today uh, for those of you who missed. But uh, we're going to be uh, get, getting copies of all, all of the sermons here. But what I want to point out is that the conscience can do some of the most bizarre things. Um, I pulled down... Uh, an old textbook that I had from Covenant College on cultural anthropology because I remember that they had some descriptions of rather bizarre things that uh, various cultures hold to. For example, in a one tribe in Ghana, uh, they treat private property as sin. If you were to give somebody in that tribe a flashlight or a, a knife or something like that, they wouldn't dare hang on to that for more than a few hours. They'd keep passing it around the village. They, their conscience would really be smitten by this. Something God says is perfectly proper, and yet their whole culture has been affected by that. The Atoro tribe in Papua New Guinea forbids uh, relations, marital relations with your wife on 260 days out of the year and treats that as sin. And on the other days, you have to engage in those far from the house and not anywhere near the gardens because they believe that that will uh, spoil the crops. And you can imagine the social pressures in that culture. On the other hand, homosexuality is something that is respected and commended to be engaged in every day of the year because they think it is good for the crops. And so here is a group of people so perverted in their conscience, they feel extreme guilt when they break these taboos in regard to their, their wives or their husbands, have absolutely no guilt whatsoever in terms of homosexuality. Not maybe an extreme example, but the point is we can't just automatically say, I feel guilty over this, therefore it's wrong. We need to ask, whose standard is your conscience become subjected to? Is it God's or is it man's? Exodus 12, verse 49 says, One law shall be to the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. And the moment we begin to multiply legal codes, we confuse our conscience. God intended it to subject to only one legal code. Now, conventions are fine. Um, etiquette, policies, that's one thing. But laws that bind the conscience is an entirely different story. Now, the same is true of the second part of the conscience, uh, judgment. The passage that we read from James tells us that there is only one lawgiver, and if we start judging one another over our preferences, we are automatically raising up a competing standard. And judges are supposed to operate in terms of a standard, right? James says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. 
Now, why is that true? I think the answer is that if we begin to judge other people independently, we have set up a competing standard. For example, if you're judging people that they're sinning because they don't come to church with a coat or tie or maybe some other dress standard, what we have taken is a preference or maybe in your household even a policy and we've elevated to the status of law. Okay, and then our laws begin to be in competition with God's laws. And so we are judging. It's not God's word that's judging any longer. Anyway, James goes on. He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And so God does not allow competition. It's either God's law or man's law, but you can't have a mixture of the two. Your conscience begins immediately to be negatively impacted the moment we subject our our conscience to man's laws. We need to ask on the third area of conscience, the sense of shame or approval, where is this coming from? See, the fact that we don't have any guilt that we have peace of conscience is meaningless. We saw last week that it is quite possible for your conscience to be perfectly at peace with something that is abominable and to feel very guilty over something that God says is a good thing to engage in. And, and, and it may seem bizarre, you know, that people in the Atoro tribe would have no conscience problems over homosexuality and yet have po- conscience problems over what God says would be honorable. But the point is, if your conscience is repeatedly subjected just in a social direction to the, the laws of man, eventually it can, it can be capable of anything. And we gave an example in, in Nazi Germany where a very... Uh, what was considered to be a a moral and a polite uh, uh, people were able to justify most anything because of what others approved or disapproved of. Now today, what I want to look at, that was the effect of depravity on the conscience. What I want to look at today is what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Does his conscience all of a sudden become reliable and, uh, and perfect? And I think obviously the answer is not. But there is a change. The moment a person is regenerate, in other words, born again, God gives him a new nature, at that moment, something happens to his conscience. And we won't spend a lot of time on this because it's fairly obvious, but let me read you three passages. Hebrews 10, 21 through 22, describes what happens at conversion. It says, we are given a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so the washing with water is the outward baptism. The sprinkling of our hearts is the baptism of the Spirit. And he says at that point, there is a change that occurs in the conscience. Um, It's changed from being an evil conscience. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says something very similar. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he says the conscience is purged, which means it's purified. It's been cleansed, cleansed from its subjection to dead works, to legalism. Uh, There's some change that's automatically happened in that regard. One last passage, Titus 1.15, says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. And so God renews the inner man. He gives it a new orientation uh, to that, 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 that conscience. Where it was a previously hardened conscience, now it's soft, it's sensitive to his word. Whereas before it suppressed the law of God, now it desires the law of God. It even maybe loves the law of God. You know, David says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all of the day. Now, does that mean... If, uh, if there's a change that occurs, that our conscience is perfect. And we'd have to say, no, it's a baby conscience, and a baby conscience needs to grow, it needs to mature, it needs to be exercised before it's going to become a, a strong conscience. Uh, Paul says, I myself always strive. To strive means I work hard at it. I always strive to have a conscience without offense. Acts 24, verse 16. Hebrews 5, it talks about our conscience needing to be exercised so that our senses can discern between good and evil. Okay, just like your body has to be exercised before it's able to engage in sports, he says your conscience has to be exercised so that it can discern between good and and evil. And we're going to be looking at how to exercise the conscience uh, in upcoming uh, sermons. 
Now, what does it mean to have a weak conscience? It simply means it's a baby conscience. Uh, it's not been strengthened yet. It's not grown up yet. It's not mature yet. And the weak conscience can manifest itself in many different ways. It can manifest itself by not being convicted in areas that it should be. It can be legalistic. Um, it could just be immature. It doesn't have the, the, the ability to discern. You know, what is right? What is wrong? He doesn't really know. And so all a weak conscience means is it's an immature conscience. And Romans 14, which is, by the way, where we're going to be parking all of today is Romans 14, describes Christians who have conscience problems over things that are perfectly lawful. And so let's read verses 1 through 3. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. In verse 5, uh, you see a weaker brother, his conscience is troubled over Jewish days. In uh, verse 14, you see a person who has a compulsion to keep some ceremonial laws uh, of washing himself in certain ways, not touching certain objects. In verse 21, he feels he'd be drink, uh, sinning if he drinks wine. Now, where did they get these ideas? There were teachers spread all throughout the Roman Empire that uh, were part of the sect known as the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were pretty tough. The Essenes were the toughest of the tough in terms of all of the things that they added. They said that they put a hedge around God's law. They said, we don't want people violating the law, so we're adding all kinds of fences around it, all kinds of new laws to keep as far away from breaking the law as we can possibly get. And uh, Josephus says these Essenes... They were scattered throughout the empire. Every community just about had some of these uh, Essenes. And these Essenes insisted that men must not eat meat. They must not eat oil. And you wonder, how did they get the oil? Because oil is praised so much in the scripture. Well, it's because there might be worms in the oil, and they wanted to prevent themselves from accidentally even getting defiled by the oil. Uh, they said that... Um, you must not marry because touching a woman made a man ceremonially defiled. Must not drink wine. They had all kinds of legalistic regulations. And several of the epistles are trying to undo some of the damage that has been done by these Judaizing Essenes. And uh, Christians had their consciences that were bound and were affected by their teachings. Now, for background, I want you to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we did read this just uh, briefly last time, but let's take a look at it, and then we'll go back to Romans 14. 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And I should stop here and mention... This person is not only insensitive to violations of God's law because of the exposure that they've had to these lies, the hypocrisy and the false teaching, they're no longer sensitive to know what is and what is not true doctrine. There's a danger in exposing yourself repeatedly to, uh, to bad doctrine. But anyway, he goes on and he says, these same people who are insensitive to God's laws are hypersensitive about things God says are a blessing. Let's look at some of them. Forbidding to marry. Verse 3. <clears throat> um, these people said, if you want to be spiritual, don't get married. And if it's too late, you're already married. Don't engage in marital relations. They said, that is something that's going to defile you. You want to be, you want to be holy. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And being sanctified by the word means God's word in the New Testament had changed some of the, the ceremonial laws. God's moral law never changes, but the ceremonial laws do. And he said he's opened things up. He's made it free. He's sanctified it. God set these foods apart as being perfectly okay. Now, Timothy knows that they have liberties to eat these foods. Paul, though, does not want him saying, 
just imposing his will on them and saying, come on, you've got to eat a hamburger. It's good for you. I don't care if your conscience is bothered. No, he's very sensitive. He says, you need to instruct that conscience. And so he goes on in verse 6 and he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. And so he had a responsibility to uh, teach uh, on this. He did not want to break the light and the dashboard that's not working. He wants to fix it. He wants to instruct them. Now, with that as a background, let's go back to Romans chapter 14. And I decided to devote an entire sermon to just this one little point of some of the things that can happen if we're not causing our our conscience to grow, if we're not exercising our conscience, if we're not realigning those lights. There's all kinds of things that can happen. We're just going to spend time on it being a weak conscience. And uh, let's begin at verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Uh, The literal rendering has it, not to judgments of thoughts. Now, it doesn't specify whether it's the weaker person who is judging the thoughts of the stronger or whether it's the stronger person judging the thoughts of the weaker. If you've got a New American Standard, it takes the the latter interpretation. New King James just leaves it general. Uh, It really doesn't matter. God has already talked to the doctrines that the Essenes were fighting about, and he's saying there shouldn't be any disputes in the church. This is something that's already been settled. I don't want the stronger to be trying to to impose this on the the weaker, nor do I want the weaker to be disputing about it with the stronger, either way. And I think that that first point sets up the, the whole chapter. He says, yes, we need to welcome the weak brother into the church, but we should not welcome the tyranny of the weaker brother. Okay, there's two sides, two extremes that can happen that the whole chapter is preoccupied with. Look at your outlines. First, uh, sub-point, one, under C, okay, where it says, how do you deal with a person who has a weak conscience? Number one there, it says, though false teachers, 1 Timothy 4, are not to be received, we are to receive a disciple, in other words, a Christian who's willing to learn, we're to receive a disciple who is weak, who is a weaker brother, Romans 14, 1, without despising him, verse 3, judging him, verse 4, tempting him, verse 10, making him stumble, verses 13 and 21, grieving or destroying him, verse 15. In short, if the practice is not of itself evil, vegetarianism, abstaining from wine, etc., the stronger are to have patience with and full acceptance of them. Now, the Atoro tribe, you'd have to say, quit it right now. We'll deal with your conscience later, because that was not an area of liberty. But on these areas of liberty, he says, you don't need to force them to change right away. Help them to develop, because we don't want the danger of their conscience being spoiled. Now, the list of scriptures I've put under point two gives the other half of the equation. It says, however, the weaker brother is there to learn to retrain his conscience and to grow strong, Romans 14. Therefore, he should not dispute with others by promoting his legalism, verse 1, nor should he despise those who exercise their freedoms, verse 3, judge them, verse 4, or call their liberties evil, verse 16. In short, he is not to impose his legalism on the church, nor should he make his conscience the final arbiter, verses 7 through 9 and verse 12. Paul wants the conscience of the weaker brother to be realigned to Christ so that he becomes a stronger brother and so that he no longer condemns himself, verse 22b, which says, happy is he who does not condemn himself. Uh, Continuing to read, and so that he can enter into the peace and joy that comes from God's standard of righteousness, verse 17. In other words, the weaker brother is not to impose his views upon the church to be arguing with others and trying to persuade them to come over to his weaker position. Otherwise, he ends up being a Pharisee or an Essene who's trying to teach the doctrines of demons and of men. Um, The irony, I think, of the modern weaker brother teaching that you find in many churches is that anything that a person is offended by they say, okay, the stronger brothers need to be quiet and they need to uh, treat, they, they, they would be sinning if they engage in anything that somebody else is maybe offended by. That is not weaker brotherism. That is Phariseeism, 
Okay, it, there, there's quite a contrast. You see, the only difference between Romans 14, where God is gentle with the weaker brother, and 1 Timothy 4, where he comes down very hard on the people, the issues are exactly the same. The only difference between them is that in Romans 14, the weaker brother does not yet understand God's law, and he's wanting to grow. He's wanting to understand, whereas in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it's teachers who were trying to impose a new standard of legalism upon the church. That's the only difference, really, between the, 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 the two passages. But neither does Paul want the stronger brothers being disputatious with the weaker brothers. If they want to be vegetarians while they're maturing, there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. That's not a sin. Okay, so he's saying... Be gentle with them. There's no reason to push them faster than they need to be pushed. If it is a freedom for the stronger brother to eat meat, then it's perfectly a freedom for the weaker brother not to eat meat, right? People can be vegetarians if they want. And I think this shows the gentle pastoral heart of Paul. He recognizes that many Christians have conscience problems over things they ought not to have. And as they grow in the Lord, it's important that they be protected in their conscience... And secondly, that the church be protected from their doctrine. I think it's just a beautiful balance that we see in Romans chapter 14. Both sides are important. And so in verse 3, Paul says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Be patient with him. God's not finished with him yet. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. He says it's not the place of the weaker brother to be judging anybody. I mean, he's... He's in the position to be learning, not to be teaching, and so he should not be in a position to be judging others. In fact, he says the stronger one, his position is the one that's approved. He says, for God has received him. So it's the weaker brother who needs instruction here, not the stronger brother. And yet Paul also recognizes how dangerous it is to the inner life of that person if he were to ignore that light that's saying, no, 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 this is wrong. You know, I can't be doing this. Until the weaker brother can eat in faith, he should not eat. Okay, it's important that he not harden his conscience. And so in verse 14, Paul tells the, the stronger uh, brethren, wrong chapter, verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus. Okay, so... He knows there's a right or a wrong. I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. He insists that our liberty must not be imposed upon the weaker brother. Instruct him, yes. We have to instruct him. But don't destroy his inner life. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. What's causing him to stumble? Well, it's a person who's got him over for dinner and he says, Oh, come on, eat this hamburger. It's good for you. Don't worry about it. That's what's causing him to stumble because his conscience is saying it's wrong. So he thinks it's a sin. And because of social pressure, he's saying, okay, I guess I'll go ahead and eat. What's happening? His conscience is being aligned in a social direction instead of a Godward direction. You see the point that he's, he's driving at in that? <clears throat> so there's a double problem. Previous to this, eating of the hamburger, his conscience was just uninformed. Now it's not only uninformed, it's beginning to be hardened. In fact, what Paul does is he's realigning in this chapter all three areas of that conscience uh, so that these people can become stronger uh, uh, Christians. And many evangelicals totally miss this, miss this point. They don't bother educating the weaker brother. They just let them indefinitely be weaker brothers. It's the very opposite of what Paul commands in the chapter. In fact, on some issues, the weaker brother's viewpoints become the teaching of the church. It becomes the teaching of the stronger brother, the supposedly stronger brother. I don't know how many times people have judged people, you ought not to drink wine, you know, and you show them in the Scripture. Well, I know the Scripture allows that, but you could cause somebody to stumble. You ought not to drink wine. And so they're being judged. They don't have the liberty any longer that the Scripture gives. Now, we'll get to that a little bit later, but right now I want to quickly go through, show how those three areas of conscience are reoriented. First of all, the law. 
Paul instructs the weaker brother in verse 2 that the moral law allows a person to be a vegetarian or not a vegetarian. He gives them freedom. But in verse 3, he instructs his conscience that he cannot make up new laws by which to judge men. Verse 4 says that God is the only one who can judge. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. In verse 5, Paul instructs him on God's present view of the Jewish calendar. Okay, if people want to follow the Jewish calendar, he says that's no problem, so long as they're not doing it because a, a, a law has been binding their conscience. You're free to do it, but not in terms of... Uh, 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 of conscience, there's a liberty here, he says, that the scripture is given. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And it's precisely the, the uh, stronger brother's understanding of the changes to the, moral, the ceremonial law that makes him not celebrate any Jewish day. He's got a new covenant day to observe, and he's not going to observe any of those old covenant days. Verse 14 He says, he's convinced in Jesus Christ there's nothing unclean. Now, in the Old Testament, there were things that were unclean, right? So God has changed that, and he's saying, I want to instruct you. Jesus Christ says it's okay. Verse 17, and there's other passages. So what he's doing is he's reorienting the weaker brother's understanding of the law. Next, he reorients the the weaker brother's understanding of who can judge the the conscience. In verse 3, he says, I want you despising the stronger or the stronger despising the weaker, the moment you have those kinds of attitudes, you set each other up to be seeking the approval of man rather than of God. He wants them instructing, not despising. Verse 4, who are you to judge? Only God's word can judge. And that's why I tell you guys over and over again, don't believe it because Phil Kaiser says it. You've got to check the scriptures. You've got to see that it's God himself who calls you to do this. If it's my approval that you're looking for, I'm going to let you down. If it's God's approval you're looking for, he will never let you down. Now, I do want you to notice in verse 5, Paul does not say there is no right or wrong view on days. He says, instead, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Convinced by who? It's convinced by the Lord. And that's what he says in the next uh, verse. Nor can we ignore what other people say about this or ignore what God's Word says. The way some people treat the weaker Christian doctrine, they say... I can just decide for myself what is right or what is wrong. Well, that's just as humanistic as allowing somebody else to decide for you what is right or wrong. You're not Lord of your own conscience. In fact, um, I think it's Psalm 12, verse 4. It's in a different kind of a context, but it's it's something along the lines of... um, um, We will... he's, He's rebuking people who say, We will prevail with our lips. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And God says, no, I'm Lord over your lips. I can tell you what you need to do. And I think it's the same attitude many people have with their conscience. They say, you know, my conscience is my own. Who is Lord over my conscience? And God says, I am. It is just as humanistic for you to be deciding independently what you ought to and what you ought not to believe as it is for somebody else to decide for you. Uh, Look, for example, at verse 7. He says... For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And he ends verse 8 by saying, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord. Okay, he says he is Lord of everything, and that's the direction we need to be orienting our conscience. When we're training our children, it's not just our word that they need to obey. We're supposed to be instructing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so their conscience is directed to the Lord. Otherwise, we're developing a socially or horizontally related uh, conscience. Now, let me clarify something. When Paul says in verse 13, "...therefore let us not judge one another any more." He does not mean you can't speak God's word into the situation. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting himself. Because he's spoken God's word into the situation. He said, I'm convinced, and it's from Jesus. This is not just Paul. It's from Jesus. There is nothing unclean. Well, that's a contradiction of what the weaker brother has just finished saying. Uh, He's instructed the, the weaker brother. In fact, he calls him a weaker brother. Is that not a judgment? But it's not his judgment. It's a judgment that comes by revelation. It's a judgment. <clears throat> it's a judgment of the Lord. 
And so what he's trying to do in this chapter, he's trying to teach these weaker brothers to get out of that problem and into uh, stronger brotherism. Verse 14, I know and convinced by Lord Jesus there is nothing unclean in itself. Now let's just assume that this person has been instructed and you're the instructor. You know, you're convinced your, your instruction's just great, you know, and these people ought to understand what I'm saying. But this person says, you know, you read the scripture to me, but it sure doesn't seem like that's what it means to me. What do you do? Well, you can't just impose your view upon that person. You've got to have a trust in the Holy Spirit's convicting power in his life. You see, this is one of the problems many evangelicals have gotten into, and it's Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith. The implicit faith doctrine, uh, they made people believe something just on the authority of the church. Didn't make any sense to the people whatsoever. There was no rational, um, no rational, rational relationship, and they said, "No, you've got to have an implicit faith that this doctrine is from God, because the church has authority." Well, the Reformation was against that, and they said, uh, "The church does not have that authority. We've got to align people to the authority of God's word." Now, people can go to the opposite extreme, and they can say, "Unless I understand everything about this doctrine, I can't believe it." Well, that's an extreme as well, because there's almost nothing we understand everything about. You know, if a farmer was to hold uh, in his hand a pebble and a, um, and a piece of corn, and he was to say to you, you know, this corn is living and this is dead, you know, you could believe it. You wouldn't have to say, well, I want you to explain every dynamic of what goes on into making that corn sprout. I mean, not even physicists can understand every dimension of the life that's there. But you can believe it because there's enough understanding that you have. But the point is, faith is rational. And if you're asking a person to believe it just on your say-so, that's not rational. They've got to understand at least minimally, okay, I can see that the Scripture does call for what you're saying that it calls for. Now, another clarification is that the command, do not judge, does not mean that we have to be silent when the so-called weaker brother starts insisting everybody start eating meat or, or, or stop drinking, uh, you know, stop eating meat or drinking wine. Look at verse 16. He tells the stronger brother there, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. In fact, in the NIV, it's, it comes out real clear there. But he says, don't allow it. Don't allow the good that you're doing to be spoken of as evil. And so there was an official church position. You look up in commentaries and they'll all say the official church position was the stronger brother's position, right? So uh, the weaker brother was being accepted, but he had to realize there was a position that the church held to and he was not supposed to be teaching contrary to that. Uh, he was not supposed to be engaging in Phariseeism. Uh, it's quite different from weaker, weaker brotherism. Okay. Um, so far, he's, Paul has sought to realign their conscience and their understanding of the law. Secondly, of who can judge their conscience. Third area is the inner sense of peace or discomfort, the sense of being judged or being approved. Verse 20. Second sentence says, All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. And if you look in the margin there, you will see that it's a feeling of giving offense. And so he knows these people are wrestling with these inner feelings of shame, uh, this false guilt that they had because of the offense they had caused to the Essenes. Now, it's not only what other people uh, might do, but if you look at verse 22, you'll see that our consciences are quite capable of condemning us, even when we're in a room all by ourselves and nobody else is around to see us. Look at verse 22, uh, second part. It says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And we'll especially look at how to get into that happy state in upcoming part of the, uh, of the outline. Um, but he's, I'm just showing that he's realigning this part of the conscience. Positive side can be seen in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I don't want this legalism to be robbing you of your joy and peace in the Lord. And it can. Uh, I was in a very legalistic uh, group, and my conscience was just tied up into knots because of the legalism that had been imposed upon me. 
When I finally began to realize there is nothing but God and His Word that is Lord of the conscience, it ushered me into a freedom and a joy that was just remarkable. I mean, it's just like night and day. And that's what I want you guys to have as well. That's one of the reasons I'm not hurrying through this series. As some of it may seem, okay, Phil, get on with it. You know, you've covered that several times. But I want to make sure you really understand how this all works so that you can work on having a good conscience as well. <clears throat> now, let's just say <clears throat> that... Um, let, let's just say that... Uh, we have these same problems in the church today. Let's bring it from the first century out of the theoretical into the practical. What difference does it make? Are there people today who um, feel guilty eating meat? And I would say absolutely yes, there are. There are multitudes of Christians. I had a friend who gave me a book, was trying to convince me that I needed to be a vegetarian and this was uh, <clears throat> a medical book that showed all the bad things, you know, that meat did to you. Now, if I was convinced that meat was bad for me and the Scripture didn't address that, then I would have to quit because the Scripture does say, don't defile your body. The problem was, is the science of this book was contradicted by the Bible. There's only one infallible thing in life, right? And it sure ain't science. Okay, science is always changing. You know, 20 years from now, they're going to say something different. You know, they used to say alcohol was bad for you, is killing brain cells. Now they're saying it's good for you. I mean, they're always changing their opinion. There's only one thing in life that is infallible, and it's the Word of God. And the Word of God says eating meat in moderation is very good for you. And so uh, there are people who have uh, real conscience problems. By the way, there is a great medical book that Larry Nolte showed me that gives a biblical perspective. I think it's really balanced. I think it's a very helpful one. But this one wasn't so hot. Um, I had another health book that said honey was bad for you and milk was bad for you. You should not eat honey. It's going to ruin your body. And he had all kinds of scientific evidence to show that honey was bad for you. In fact, in this book, he says, if you follow my diet, you'll never die of cancer. And I thought it was so ironic. God had him die of cancer. <laughs> And then his wife kept publishing his books that, ah, yeah, but he was only able to do this diet the last 20 or 30 years, whatever it was of his life. If he had started when he was a kid, he wouldn't have gotten cancer, you know, so you can't convince people uh, if their minds are made up. But the thing I found so funny, he says, it was Rodale, Rodale publisher, some of you are probably familiar, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, but anyway, he said, honey is very bad for you. Well, he contradicts the scripture. Scripture says, my son... Eat honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. Proverbs 24, verse 13. In Deuteronomy, God gave honey to uh, his people. The same can be said of moderation in other things as well. Salt and many other things that people have said are bad for you. And so if you are convinced that those things were bad for you, abstain until you can be convinced from the Scripture otherwise. But the moment you see in the Scripture what you said was bad is good, you need to say, oh, okay, I'm enlightened. I'll stop doing that. And if I start feeling my conscience bothered about that, I'm going to keep going and say, no, the Scripture says this is good. I'm not going to align it to what other people are condemning me for because there's a sense of condemnation that can come from people or it can come from God. And God right here has said here is no condemnation. Okay? So we've got to continually argue with our conscience in that way. Now, Scripture doesn't have any problem with vegetarianism or not eating honey. If that's your preference, perfectly good. But the moment you set it up, what somebody else has said is a lord of your conscience, and you say it's a sin to do this, that's where you get yourself into trouble. Now, let's just play that situation out a little bit further. Let's say that you have somebody in the church that believes it's, it's sinful to drink milk, uh, to eat honey, or to have salt, but you want to have them over to your house for lunch. How do you deal with this? And we've had to deal with this a number uh, of times. Well, the Scripture would say, number one... Don't, don't despise this person. Don't say you're weird. You know, th this is ridiculous. No, he's seeking to please God. His conscience is troubling him because he wants to do what is right. So you honor him, you receive him, you welcome him in the Lord, you seek to treat him gently, and then you try at different times to, to instruct him in the Lord. But 
don't be doing the instructing right there at the dinner table and saying, okay, now I've told you, I want you to eat the hamburger, okay? No, you give them time. They have to have time to process that through, and that's a mistake sometimes people make. They hammer on something, immediately they've got to change. Well, how long did it take us to change? You know, a lot of times it's taken us a long time to be convinced of certain principles. And so he says, be patient. And um, you may even decide, tell this person, okay, I've done a little research, and you don't have to eat the meat that we're going to be eating. We've gotten some special food for you. Or you may just decide to eat his diet for that meal just to accommodate him because you don't want to, maybe he's offended that you're eating meat, okay? So you just say for that whole meal, until this person can, can be convinced otherwise, we're going to eat his way. Now let's say that this person thinks that honey damages the body, must be abstained from by all Christians. You've read him several scriptures. You've read him, well, God right here says, honey is good, my son eat honey. And he still insists on on saying not only that it's bad for him, but all Christians need to abstain from this, and he's trying to argue and convince other people of that. Then what you need to do, he is transferred from Romans 14 to 1 Timothy 4, and he's now an Essene teacher who's imposing his laws, and you need to tell him, look, if you want to eat honey, I mean, if you don't want to eat honey, that's your freedom. You're perfectly free to not eat honey. But you are not free to take away the freedoms of other people to eat honey. The scriptures are clear on this. And until your conscience is changed, I don't want to hear you trying to impose your legalism upon other people. You, you need to treat it that way. Otherwise, the whole church can become infected with the legalism. Now, I don't want Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, Paul indicates that the weaker brothers felt compelled to keep all of the Old Testament um, Jewish holy days. And the stronger brother, and it's clearly the stronger brother here who does not feel compelled to do that, he doesn't feel compelled to keep any Old Testament Jewish days. He's got his new covenant day keeping. And I should mention, some people misapply this and say there is no different day. You don't need to go to church or whatever. Let me tell you something. There are many passages in the New Testament command a day keeping. One of them is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It says, As I have given orders to all the churches, so you must do on the first day of the week, let each of you, and he talks about the offerings and the gathering together, he's saying it's not an option. I want you to gather on the first day of the week. You cannot gather on an old covenant day. There's a new day that's come about, and that's a day keeping. Wednesday was not an option. And so don't apply this to the New Testament daykeeping of the, of the first day Sabbath. What was going on here is he was saying all of the old covenant days have been abolished. Some people haven't gotten there yet. They still feel in conscience God expects them to keep the day of atonement and Passover and the Saturday Sabbath. And he's saying you need to be gentle with these people. You need to be gentle with them. Now at Trinity, we had people in the church who had very similar views. And you those of you who were at Trinity probably were not aware of it because they were very biblical and following Romans 14. They were trying to understand and grow, uh, grow through this process. And so what uh, they did, they kept Pentecost and Day of Atonement and all of those things. They kept a Saturday Sabbath all day long. They did not work. Then they came to Trinity because they wanted to hear my preaching and they didn't consider that a Sabbath, but they kept, it to them, kept that to themselves. And so I think they handled it they handled it uh, very well. Now, let me make an aside here on the matter of Easter and of Christmas. On each of the four issues that Paul deals with in this chapter, the stronger brother could, just out of a matter of preference, partake of any of the Old Testament covenant uh, uh, days, you know, the holy days. No problem. Paul did it, you know. Paul knew he was not bound by any of those Old Testament days, but he, uh, uh, he engaged uh, in, in, in the celebration of those days, and he was not exercised about it at all. And, and, and in Acts, it mentions Pentecost that he kept. It mentions some other uh, days that he kept. Now, here's the place where Paul drew the line. 
When others in the church began insisting everybody needs to keep these days, and they need to keep it by way of pleasing God. They need to keep it in terms of sin or of righteousness. Paul says, no way. Now you're getting into legalism. Now you're stepping on, on toes that ought not to be stepped on. And in Colossians and in Galatians, uh, he absolutely forbade that. Jesus said, you make null the law of God by your man-made traditions. We cannot uh, go contrary to that. So if you're a vegetarian, teetotaler, observer of days, be sure you're doing it out of liberty rather than out of compulsion. So if Christmas and Easter are celebrated without compulsion of conscience, absolutely no, no, nothing wrong with that celebration. Now here comes an interesting question, and it's come up to me before. There are people who say that Romans 14 gives me liberty to celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, and uh, they want to convince everybody in the church to adopt their liberty. They wanted to argue about it with other people. And I said, no, absolutely not. You look at Romans chapter 14, and Paul says, you can be welcome in the church if you don't dispute about it, verse 1. If you don't despise the New Covenant Sabbath, verse 3. If you don't call what we are engaging in evil, verse 16, which is exactly what he wanted to do. See, when they do that, they've changed from being a weaker brother into being a teacher. And this is where I think many Christians get confused in Romans 14. They think the moment somebody brings anything up by which they're offended, the stronger brother has to shut his mouth and be quiet. No. Not at all. Paul did not shut his mouth in this chapter about where they were at. It's one thing to be affected by Judaizers. It's quite another to be a Judaizer. In Galatians 4, 9 through 11, Paul says to a church that was beginning to be turned to these weaker doctrines, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? He says, I want you to have liberty, not legalism. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Now keep in mind, Paul kept those days in Acts. Didn't always, but sometimes he kept them. But he did not do it by way of a conscience. He did not do it by way of a mandate or a law. In fact, I want you to turn uh, to Colossians 2. This is one of the passages that deals again with exactly the same issues that had come into the church. <clears throat> Colossians 2, and um, beginning at verse 16. He says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink. And we'll be getting to the drink a little bit later on, but he says, I don't want anybody to judge you. Same thing that verse, what was it, verse 17 of Romans 14 said, don't let anybody sp say what you're doing is evil. Okay, that's going way beyond what the liberties allow. But he says here, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, keep in mind, Paul kept those days with the Jews. It was a freedom issue. It was no big deal to keep the days or not to keep the days. But he says, the moment people judge you by it, the moment they set it up as a standard, he says, don't let people do it. Your conscience will be torn apart if uh, you allow that to happen. Now look down at verses 20 through 23. <clears throat> it says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world you subject yourselves to regulations? Okay, this is ethics. Regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. <clears throat> Can you see how Paul treats, treats the same issues quite differently when they change from liberty to laws that are imposed? Now let's go back to Romans 14, and let's finish quickly the last two areas that uh, Paul touched upon. Romans 14, in verse 14, we find an indication that they were submitting to ceremonial laws, ceremonial clean and unclean distinctions, and perhaps even some other additions that the Essenes had give, given. 
The Essenes had conscience problems about being made unclean by sexual contact, touching a Gentile. There were so many other things. And I've talked to Christians who have had the same problems in their lives. They have felt very guilty about things and unclean about things God has said were good. Um, <clears throat> if you feel guilty about God-ordained sex within marriage, then you need to align your conscience to God. Maybe it's been twisted around by some experience that happened earlier on in your life. And actually, that's an area that's not a liberty. That's an area God has commanded, and so we need to double-time it, you know, in terms of training our conscience. But Hebrews 13, verse 4, makes clear, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So he says, it is defiled by adultery, by fornication. It's not by this. He says, you need to make sure you get your conscience aligned. Sometimes people need counseling to be able to do that. Last conscience problem in Romans 14 Alluded to in verse 21, drinking alcoholic beverages. Essenes forbade it, even though God's word allowed it. And Paul says, yep, you've got liberty to drink, but hey, if somebody's got a conscience problem, don't be handing them a glass of wine. You know, don't be trying to force them prematurely uh, to be drinking when they're over at your house. He violates his conscience, and that's doing the exact opposite of what you want to happen. Now, let me just point out again, just as with the other examples, if a person doesn't like the taste of alcohol, it's no big deal. Don't drink it. That's a liberty you have. You have a liberty to drink it. You have liberty not to drink it. And, and, and there needs to be a gentleness and concern. Now, let me point out uh, that Christ knew exactly what alcohol would do to the body. Some people say it damages your body. The Bible says it's good for your body. He knew exactly what it would do. He praised it. He drank it. He gave it to others to drink. Scripture condemns drunkenness. It does not condemn alcohol. And I think many times our conscience has been affected by our society far more than God's Word. Psalm 104, 14 through 15 says, God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food for the earth, from the earth and wine which makes man's gl heart glad. So he's saying God brings wine for the purpose of making man's heart glad. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.7 Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Isaiah uses these words for the new covenant. And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of morrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And by the way, if you're guilty over eating fat things, uh, this passage says don't be. God delights in giving his people the fat things of this earth. Come over to our house to eat some rich dessert, you know. I mean, it's not something we should feel guilty of. It's overindulgence that God says we ought not to engage in. It's not eating of the choice or the fat things of this earth. Even strong drink is blessed in Deuteronomy 14, 26. It says, And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or for strong drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And there are many other passages that use the Hebrew and the Greek words for mead, beer, strong drink, wine, mixed drinks, and other drinks in a positive, positive context. Now, if there's somebody that's listening to the tape that we're recording here, their emotions may be so upset by what we're going through, what we're talking about, and their preference might be, why doesn't the stronger person just in his liberty abstain from alcohol? Then we'll all be happy. The problem is, if you're asking them to do it, it's no longer a liberty, is it? It's become a law. It's become legalism. Anything that's in addition to God's law is legalism. You know what? Uh, the Pharisees were asking exactly the same thing of Jesus. They didn't want to drink wine. They abstained from it. And Jesus did not accommodate his conscience to their scruples. He drank wine, and he gave others to drink wine, and the Pharisees retaliated by saying, you're a drunkard, and a, wine, you know, a glutton and a wine-bibber, I think is the way that he worded it. Jesus says, I don't care what your condemnations are. My conscience is before the Lord. It's submitting to one judge, one law, and one sense of peace, or of the fear of God, not the fear of man. And this is what scotch-drinking theologian John Murray <laughs> referred to as the tyranny of the weaker brother. 
It really is. It's become a tyranny in America. Now, I don't particularly like scotch, you know. I don't think he was crazy drinking it, but <laughs> that's his freedom. Uh, Christ has called our consciences to liberty, and if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, on the flip side, in 1 Corinthians 8.9, he says, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. He says, don't flaunt it. And um, the reason why James calls the law the perfect law of liberty is because God knows best what can make for the maximum enjoyment of his people, the maximum freedom of his people. He has laid down railroad tracks for the engine, the train of your life to be able to run efficiently, smoothly, powerfully on, but you remove one of those tracks, it gets stuck. And, and if you diminish God's laws, make the gauge narrower, or if you add to God's laws by making them wider, your train still can't work. The only way that our train can run with the power, the freedom, the joy, the peace of the Holy Spirit that Romans 14 talks about is as it is only subject to one God one law, one judge, and one sense of peace or approval from others. And that's what I admonish you guys to develop. As Paul says, I always strive to have a conscience that is void of offense. Uh, that's my desire for you as well. We've spent a long time on this, but I really want to make sure you guys understood it. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer.